Part 3. Through Western Eyes Beginnings The question which every Western monk would get asked sooner or later, and usually sooner, was why he chose to become a monk. It was often a more difficult question to answer than might be expected. It wasn't so easy to distinguish causes from triggers, or to be sure that an uplifting narrative was not being patched together with hindsight. Monks usually settled on recounting the events leading up to their decision and their departure to Thailand. There was, for instance, Papakuro, an American helicopter pilot who first came to the country on R&R during the Vietnam War. There were the Peace Corps volunteers and the young travellers backpacking through Asia like the Canadians Tiradamo and Viradamo. There were also those like the British Brahmavangso and the Australian Nyanadamo who came with the express intention of becoming monks. Many started off by reading books. The first generation, when books on Theravada Buddhism were hard to find, were inspired by the works of Alan Watts, Charles Luke and D.T. Suzuki. Later generations arrived having read translated works of Lung Po Cha, books by Ajahn Sumedho or American Vipassana teachers. Some were seeking to deepen and stabilize the lucid calm they had experienced on seven or ten-day meditation retreats. Others were inspired by their contact with Buddhist monks while traveling around Thailand. One amongst the latter was Ajahn Suchito. He recounts the effect of seeing monks on arms round. One early morning, sitting in a cafe, I saw monks from a local monastery walking on arms round. They were in a line, barefoot in the dusty road, walking towards me. The rising sun glowed through their brown robes. Each monk had only a simple arms bowl with him, and their faces were serene and gentle. Their walking was calm and unhurried. They were not going anywhere. They were just walking. The weight of years of self-importance lifted off my heart. Something soared within me like a bird at dawn. But for the disciples of Luang Por, it was almost invariably his presence and example that inspired them to stay and take the leap into monastic life, or, if they were already ordained, to make a long-term commitment to the Wat Ba Pong training. For most, the first meeting with him, although outwardly inconsequential, was momentous and life-changing. Some monks spoke of a sense of relief, as if they had finally found a place and a teacher they didn't want to leave. As Ajahn Nyanadamo squatted down respectfully, hands in Anjali, Lung Po walked over to him, and without speaking, took his hands in his own. I felt this shock and joy, and a weight fall from my shoulders. I didn't realize until after he'd gone how much suffering I'd been carrying around with me. One of the richest sources of anecdotes concerning Luang Po and his Western disciples is to be found in the writings of Paul Breiter. Breiter arrived in Wat Ba Pong in 1972 and, as Venerable Varapanyo, struggled gamely through five years of monastic training before disrobing and returning to his native United States. In 1993, his memoir of the years he spent with Luang Po, Venerable Father, was printed in Bangkok. It begins with words that struck a chord with many of his contemporaries. If I have ever loved anybody in my life, 
then it's Luang Por Cha. Venerable Varapanyo's first meeting with Luang Por took place in Bangkok. I was overwhelmed by his radiant, exuberant happiness. I'd really never seen anyone like that. He seemed like a big, happy frog sitting on his lily pad, and I thought, if all you have to do to be like that is sit in the forest for 30 years, it's worth it. I remember how my spirits were lifted then. In the car going back to the Wat, I was thinking, there's hope. The practice of meditation and the Buddhist monk's way of life, both of which I found so difficult, much more difficult than anything I'd ever done, thought of doing or heard of anyone else doing, can produce results. Seeing a living example was worth more than reading any number of books. Ajahn Brahmavangso, a monk with a rigorous scientific background, decided to take Luang Po as his teacher after having his rational mind confounded. He recalls that shortly after his arrival in the Wat, while listening to Luang Po teaching another Western monk, he mentally formulated his own question. As soon as he'd done so, Luang Po spoke words that seemed to answer his query directly, more so than that of the apparent questioner. Assuming it was probably a coincidence, he formulated another question, which was also promptly answered. This occurred again and again. Not all of the foreign monks at Wat Pong were from Western countries. Ajahn Goesiko, for instance, was from northern Japan. After a period mountaineering in Nepal, he had devoted himself to learning yoga in India before visa difficulties forced him to leave for Thailand. For him, Inspiration first arose from his impression of the monastery itself and what it suggested about the abbot. I arrived at the Wat just as the monks were leaving on arms round. I was very impressed to see them walking in a line, composed and restrained. I couldn't take my eyes away from them. It was such a beautiful sight, something I'd never seen before. I walked into the Wat and the path was neat and clean and pleasant to walk along. There were no branches or leaves littering the path. It impressed me even more. I thought, the abbot must be very good. He must have a very strict discipline. Ajahn Goesiko's lay name had been Shibahashi. Luang Po found it impossible to pronounce and dubbed him Sibat Hasip, which means 4 baht 50 in Thai. He inspired the young man by explaining how an inner search a search for the end of suffering was more valuable than an outer search. Unless he knew how to abandon negative mental states, climbing mountains was a waste of time. This inner search and training lay at the heart of monastic life. Forbart 50 decided to stay. Some 15 years later, when Luang Por was bedridden, Ajahn Goesiko became one of the stalwarts of the nursing shift. Above all, he was motivated by gratitude. He said that he felt that however much he did, he would never be able to repay even a small part of the debt he owed to his teacher. I felt as if he gave me a new life. He was like mother and father to me. He gave me so many things. It was like I was slowly sinking into quicksand, just about to be swallowed, and he pulled me out and saved my life. The young Australian musician, who was later to become Ajahn Puriso, was struck by the contrast between Wat Ba Pong and other temples. 
the sombre-coloured robes of the monks, their composure as they went about their duties, their aloofness, the sense that something meaningful was going on. I was told I could stay in the Dharma Hall, informed where to find a pillow and a blanket, and then left to myself. The eerie Pali Thai chanting I heard that night was totally beyond my mind's grasp. I couldn't even figure out if it sounded good or just strange. But the sight of the monks in the great, dark hall, lit with only a few candles, squatting immobile on their toes as they chanted for more than thirty minutes, was truly awe-inspiring. Ajahn Pasano, abbot of Wat Banana Chat for over ten years and now abbot of Abayagiri Forest Monastery in Northern California, first came to Wat Pong as a visiting monk after having entered the Sangha in Bangkok. His thoughts echo those of Ajahn Sumedho. An abiding impression I gained of the way of life at Wat Pong was that this was something that you could live over a long time. Whereas at the places I had practiced meditation before, it was a matter of applying a particular technique in a kuti in a special section of a monastery. It wasn't something that could be lived. Wat Bapong opened up a new dimension for me, the sense of being able to make a long-term commitment to a teacher, a training, and the vinaya. What struck me very strongly was the thought that if you were going to lead the holy life for any length of time and reap benefits from it, then you would need to keep the vinaya, to have an integrated lifestyle of Dhamma vinaya practice. Lung Po really understood very clearly how completely we need to restructure our perceptions and every aspect of our conditioning. So his way of teaching was not just a meditation technique, but a complete training of body, speech and mind. That was really the hallmark, his emphasis, what I feel was special about him. After a period of probation as a visiting monk and Akanduka, Ajahn Pasano was fully accepted into the Wat Pong community. I remember looking forward to being able to participate in the Patimoka and getting quite excited. When the bell was rung, I was very eager and immediately made my way to the Oposita Hall. Lung Po didn't show up for another hour and a half. He was over in the Mechi section giving them a talk, and I had a lot of trouble sitting on the hard floor. We hadn't even started the Patimoka, and I was already squirming. Lung Po came and chatted back and forth with various monks, and then we performed the Patimoka. Afterwards, about 10pm, he started to give a discourse, and that went on until almost three in the morning, when he looked over innocently at the clock and said, maybe you'd better ring the bell for morning chanting. Then Lung Po walked into the Dhamma Hall to give a short talk to the lay people, and we went to have a drink. The kettles of sweet drinks had been standing there since the previous evening and were full of ants. I must confess that quickly dampened my enthusiasm for Patimoka. Many Luang Pors. Naturally enough, perceptions of Luang Por varied considerably from monk to monk, reflecting their own differing experiences and ideals, biases and projections, and the clarity of their minds. Some sought to be close to him. Others, more self-sufficient, kept themselves at a greater distance. Different aspects of his teachings appealed to different monks, 
and there were various opinions as to where exactly the essence of it all lay. For Ajahn Manindo, who, like Ajahn Sumedho, had begun his monastic life in a monastery with an emphasis on solitary, formal meditation practice, it was Lung Po's more group-oriented approach. The thing that attracted me to come up to Ubon was that fragments of a teaching showed that Lung Po was really committed to training his monks, which was something that I'd not seen elsewhere. What characterized Lung Po's teaching, as far as I could see, was his insistence on our learning to live together as a community. Meditation, of course, that's what we're here for, but that we should also view our communal, monastic lifestyle as central to practice. Somehow I got the message that that was what he was all about, and I realized that's what I needed. It wasn't that he'd tell you all the answers. He was there for you. He would listen to you and give you space to experiment, get it wrong. His teaching was an invitation to figure it out. He seemed to see that his job was to get us established in the monk's life, but that it was then up to us to do the practice. There was the feeling that he wasn't going to take you and guide you step by step through the teachings and various stages of meditation. He said he wasn't interested in giving daily interviews. This was clearly not his way. It was giving you the guidelines of how to live as a monk. I didn't take that as an abandonment. It was freedom. Personally, I welcomed it. To Ajahn Manindo, it was Lung Po himself and the quality of attention he gave to his disciples that was most inspiring. Here, he felt, was a teacher who was going to be there for whatever situation that might arise. Lung Po made them feel like they were his sons and was always concerned with their welfare. He was available as a human being, with a good sense of humor. He could share a joke with you. He could share your suffering with you. You felt he understood you, that he knew what you were thinking or going through. You felt he was there with you in your life and your struggles and your joy. Ajahn Munindo cherished the memory of the daily visits that Lung Po made to his kuti to check on his condition during a period of illness. He also appreciated being able to speak to Lung Po when doubts and worries threatened to overwhelm him. I remember going to see him once, full of doubts. Lung Po just sat there and listened. He must have heard that kind of thing a thousand times before. But I really felt he looked at me and saw me and he said, I felt like that once. I felt like my head was going to explode or split open. I doubted so much I thought my head was going to burst. I know what it's like. But never mind. Working like this with doubts makes you stronger. Venerable Varapanyo agreed that kind words and gestures could be more memorable than profound teachings. Lung Po had visited us briefly at Wat Pen. It was afternoon, we were outside, and he came up to me and looked me over. He felt my ribs and, with a very concerned look on his face, remarked how skinny I'd gotten. It was not only my mind that had been freaking out. For many months afterwards, I remembered that look of concern. A turning point in Venerable Varapanyo's monastic life came with the opportunity to be Lung Po's attendant. He said, in the afternoon, when water haulings finished, you can come here and clean up. 
My first reaction was, he's got a lot of nerve telling me to come and wait on him. But apart from being one of my duties, it was the foot in the door and a privilege. Through it, I was to start seeing that there was a way of life in the monastery, rich, structured and harmonious. And at the center of it all is the teacher, who is someone to be relied upon. And finally, he asked, why was I so skinny? Immediately, one of the monks who was there told him that I just took a very small ball of rice at mealtime. Did I not like the food? I told him I just couldn't digest much of the sticky rice, so I kept cutting down. I'd come to accept it as the way it was, thinking I was so greedy that eating less and less was a virtue. But he was concerned. Did I feel tired? Most of the time I had little strength, I admitted. So he said, I'm going to put you on a special diet for a while, just plain rice gruel and fish sauce to start with. You eat a lot of it, and your stomach will stretch out, and then we'll go to boiled rice, and finally to sticky rice. I'm a doctor, he added. I found out later that he actually was an accomplished herbalist, as well as having knowledge of the various illnesses monks are prone to. He told me not to push myself too much if I didn't have the strength, I didn't have to carry water, etc. That was when the magic really began. That was when he was no longer just Ajahn Chah to me. He became Lung Po, Venerable Father. Most of the Westerners who came to Wat Ba Pong with the intention of becoming monks had read a lot of Buddhist books and carried with them ideas of how a monastery and an enlightened master should be. It was often when Luang Po confounded those expectations that he made the deepest impression. For Ajahn Amaro, it was a generous smile at a time when he was expecting to be admonished for a mistake. At the time, Ajahn Amaro, still a novice, was serving as attendant to the then abbot of Wat Chat, Ajahn Pabakaro, during an overnight visit from Luang Po. I woke up and saw light coming through the gaps between the planks in the walls of my hut I thought, wow, the moon's really bright tonight. I looked at my alarm clock and it said one o'clock. Then I realized, my clock must have stopped. That's not the moon, that's the sun. So I leapt up, gathered my robes on and raced down the path. When I got to the back of the Dhamma Hall, all the other monks had already left on arms round, except Ajahn Pabakaro and Lung Po, who were going on the shorter route. I thought, okay, I've still got time. Maybe they didn't notice. So I started to prepare their robes for arms round, hoping they didn't see that I'd arrived late and had missed the morning chanting and sitting. While I was kneeling down by Lung Po's feet, tying up the tags at the bottom end of his robes, he said something in Thai which I couldn't understand. I looked up slightly anxiously towards Ajahn Pabakaro for a translation. Lung Po had a big grin on his face, a wonderful, friendly, loving smile. Then Ajahn Pabakro translated, Sleep's delicious, huh? For Ajahn Kamenando, another British-born monk, a key moment occurred when he unexpectedly saw his teacher in a new, more approachable light. One day, newly arrived and still wearing the white robes of the postulant, he had been chatting with a friend on the balcony of his kuti when, glancing down the path, he had been shocked to see Luang Po calling out and beckoning with his hand. We thought he was going to scold us for not meditating diligently, but Luang Po didn't seem bothered at all. 
He wasn't telling us to stop talking, but calling to us, come here, come here. It transpired that Long Paul was on a monitor lizard hunt. He was very fond of the forest chickens, which he would feed with rice in the area around his own kutti. He wanted to protect them from their natural enemy, the large monitor lizards, which liked to eat their eggs. He had tracked one of these lizards to this part of the forest, and now mimed an explanation to them of how to fix a string snare to the end of a bamboo pole. He was going to catch the lizard and have it banished from the forest. The two clumsy, inexperienced westerners, goaded on by an enthusiastic Lung Po, thrashed around unsuccessfully for some time, and finally, after enjoying a good laugh together, gave up the hunt. What struck me most about this little episode was the contrast between Lung Po the lizard hunter, displaying a very natural spontaneity and down-to-earth, almost childlike simplicity and humour, and the awe-inspiring formality of his role as head of a large, important monastery, which up to this point was all I'd ever seen of him. This had the effect of undermining many of my own preconceptions regarding what a great, enlightened teacher was supposed to be like, and helped me to see that Lung Po was actually very natural and quite funny, which allowed me to feel less intimidated and more relaxed in being around him. For another newly arrived postulant, Sean, the memorable occasion occurred in a more formal setting. It was New Year's Eve, and the Dhamma Hall was jam-packed. We'd all gathered to see in the New Year with Dhamma talks and auspicious chanting. As there was no space inside, hundreds more people were sitting out under the trees. The raised platform at the western end of the hall, where the monks sat, was equally packed. In the middle of the platform, directly below the large bronze Buddha image, sat Lung Po, surrounded by all his monastic disciples. It was a marvellous, thrilling scene. Suddenly, I saw a slight ripple pass through the rows of monks. One of the senior monks, his hands in Anjali, leaned towards Lung Po. Immediately, Lung Po got up, and his sitting cloth was moved to one side. Shortly afterwards, an old monk wearing the brighter yellow robes of a city monk walked onto the platform. I couldn't help comparing him unfavourably with Lung Po, who always looked so immaculate. The old monk's robe was crumpled and kept falling off his shoulder. I was not impressed, and wondered what Lung Po's reaction to a visit at such an inconvenient time would be. He answered me immediately with his humble and respectful demeanour. The old monk knelt down on Lung Po's seat, bowed to the Buddha in a perfunctory way, and then turned around to face the Sangha. Lung Po led all of his monk disciples in bowing to the old monk, followed by the novices, nuns and lay people in their turn. It seemed to me that I'd never appreciated the beauty of a bow until I saw Lung Po bow that night. But more than that, what particularly struck me and has stayed in my mind ever since was the fluency with which Lung Po switched from being the centre of all attention and devotion to an ordinary monk paying respects to a senior. I felt that I was seeing the perfect expression of the teacher as head of a Sangha but subservient to Dhamma and Vinaya. In speaking of the admirable qualities of their teacher, 
Westerners frequently referred to Luang Por's uncanny ability to adapt to the changing imperatives of situations and audiences, apparently without effort, and as if it was the most normal thing in the world. Interestingly, it was an ability rarely mentioned by his Thai disciples. The hierarchical nature of Thai society, the emphasis on social harmony and prioritizing the needs of the group over the individual, means that most people, including non-meditators, are quite accomplished in adapting to the social environment. It's likely that the more profound expression of this ability in a great spiritual teacher was thus less obviously special to the Thais than to the Westerners. The Westerners, for their part, felt inspired by what they recognized as an impressive non-attachment to social roles and personality. The sense that Luang Por could be anything at all because he identified with nothing whatsoever as an abiding self, was captured well by Ajahn Amaro when relating the time he was asked to deliver a message to Lung Po at his kuti. I saw that he was sitting downstairs on his rattan seat. His eyes were closed and there was no one else around. When I went up and kneeled in front of him, he didn't open his eyes and I thought, hmm, I wonder what I should do. I waited a few minutes and his eyes were still closed. Some important Ajahn was waiting, so I said in Thai, excuse me. Then he opened his eyes and it was like there was absolutely nobody there. It wasn't like he was asleep, the eyes came open, but there was no expression on his face. It was completely empty. He looked at me and I looked at him and said, Lung Po, Ajahn Chu asked me to bring a message that some people have come to the Dhamma Hall, and would it be possible for you to come and receive them? Again, for a moment, there was no expression, just this completely spacious, empty quality in his expression. Then, suddenly out of nowhere, the personality appeared. He made some remark that I didn't quite catch the details of. It was as if suddenly the person appeared. It was like watching a being coming into existence. There was an extraordinary quality in that moment, seeing the personality, the body, all the characteristics of personhood just being taken up like he was putting on his robe or he was assuming a role. Skillful Means If there's anything which distinguished Lung Po from his great contemporaries, it was his ability to guide a large and flourishing sangha of foreign monks. It's true that Lungta Mahabua in Udon usually had five or six Western monks with him, including Ajahn Panyawado, the greatly revered and most senior of all the foreign monks in Thailand. But it was Lung Po alone who was able to oversee a Sangha that had reached over 20 monks by the mid-1970s and is still growing to this day. The reasons for this success may be found both in Lung Po himself and the system of monastic training that he developed. Initially, it was Lung Po's charisma that drew people in. Over time, in his dealings with the foreign monks, he showed an ability to communicate with them unhampered by the obstacles of language and culture. Despite being unable to speak to them in their own tongue, his Western disciples felt that he genuinely understood them. Ajahn Kamenando noted, He was very observant, and could quite accurately assess the personality of an approaching newcomer by watching their faces, their postures, the way they walked, etc. 
Before they had even sat down or said anything, Lung Po might make a remark to those present such as, this one's full of doubt, that subsequent conversation would invariably reveal to be true. Lung Po seemed to realize clearly how different the needs of his Western disciples could be from those of his fellow Thais. The local monks were largely from poor rice-farming families. They tended to be pragmatic rather than speculative in character, and their defilements usually veered towards the more undisguised forms of greed, hatred and delusion. Consideration of this influenced Lung Po's development of a training that emphasized going against the grain. The Westerners' problems, however, often tended to be of a more intellectual bent. They could easily get caught up in tortuous webs of thought and opinion. They struggled with difficulties hard for Thais to understand, particularly a baffling kind of self-aversion they called guilt. The Westerners found it hard to put forth concerted effort into meditation without dropping into old ruts of obsessively goal-oriented striving that created more stress and tension than inner peace. While Lung Po was not infallible in his treatment of the Western monks, he was adept at learning from mistakes. He soon saw how the authoritarian, occasionally hectoring tone, to which the Thais responded so well, didn't work with his foreign disciples at all. They had grown up with a distrust of authority, took criticism more personally, and responded much better to informality and kindness. Whereas most young Thai monks did not expect a personal relationship with their teacher, most indeed would have felt uncomfortable if one had been offered, the Westerners needed to feel seen, to feel taken under the teacher's wing. With the Westerners, Lung Po was noticeably less stern. He appreciated the sacrifices they had made to come so far and live in the forest, and so he made allowances. He quickly saw how effectively humor could dissolve his Western disciples' self-importance. But whereas most of the Thai monks believed that the more relaxed way Lung Po behaved around the Western monks was simply a skillful means he was employing for their benefit, many of the Westerners tended to see in it a revelation of the real Luang Po. It was a common theme. Everyone tended to see their Luang Po as the real Luang Po. Luang Po reassured the Western monks that the difficulties they were experiencing were transitory and inevitable, given that they were taking on the power of defilements accumulated over uncountable lifetimes. It was, he said, like a very small army taking on a much larger one. Until you could marshal your resources and strengthen your forces, you should be prepared for a few humbling defeats. When he saw that the Westerners were downcast at how much harder it seemed to be for them to calm their minds than it was for their Thai friends, he explained that although it was true that monks with little formal education found it easier to let go of attachment to the thinking mind than their more educated companions, they tended to be at a disadvantage in the development of wisdom. He compared the Western mind to a large house with many rooms. It took longer to clean than a simple cottage, he said, but once the work was done, it might be a better place in which to live. Patience. It was not easy for the Westerners to adapt to life at Wat Pa Pong. 
Not only were they faced with all the innate, fundamental challenges of an ascetic life, but these were compounded by the need to learn a new language and adapt to a new culture. Physically, it could be brutal. The heat of the hot season, combined with the energy-sapping humidity, made for a particularly enervating climate. Many of the foreign monks developed gastric disorders, especially those whose diet had formerly consisted of highly refined foods. They found sticky rice heavy and hard to digest, but with only one meal a day, they had little choice but to eat a large ball of it. The alternative was losing a lot of weight, and indeed, many of the monks became so thin their ribs protruded alarmingly. Most of those who stayed on became seriously ill at least once. Malaria, scrub typhus and amoebic dysentery were a constant threat. Longpore told them to patiently endure. When Ajahn Brahmavangso was hospitalized with a high fever, Longpore visited him and encouraged him with words that were as far from mollycoddling as could be imagined. He told the young monk to reflect that there were only two outcomes to his illness. Either he'd get better, or he wouldn't. He should be at peace with both possibilities. On one occasion, Venerable Sunyo told Luangpur that he felt that since becoming a monk, his hardships and suffering had increased rather than decreased. Luangpur replied, I know that some of you have had a background of material comfort and outward freedom. By comparison, now you live an austere existence. Then, in the practice, I often make you sit and wait for long hours. Food and climate are different from your home, but everyone must go through some of this. This is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. This is how you learn. When you get angry and feel sorry for yourself, it's a great opportunity to understand the mind. The Buddha called defilements our teachers. On such occasions, Lumpur would conclude with his keynote teachings, patience and right view. You must be patient. Patience and endurance are essential to our practice. When I was a young monk, I didn't have it as hard as you. I knew the language and was eating my native food. Even so, some days I despaired. I thought of disrobing or even killing myself. This kind of suffering comes from wrong views. However, once you've seen the truth, you become free from views and opinions. Everything becomes peaceful. On another occasion, after reminding the monks, patience is the heart of Dhamma practice, the root virtue of practitioners. Lungpo observed that as few people would freely choose to practice patience, the Westerners could be said to have one advantage. It was much harder for them to run away than the Thais. He said, the thought of going all the way home is daunting, and so you've been able to put up with it so far. But it wasn't enough for them to simply grit their teeth. They needed to see the purpose for exercising patience. He was not advocating asceticism for its own sake. Things here run counter to your old habits. You eat out of your bowl, with the curries and sweets all put in together. Who could like doing that? 
If you've still got any defilements left, then they will be continually thwarted. Food of different kind gets mixed together in your bowl. How does that feel? Do you see any defilement arising in your mind? Have a look. This way of eating is niggling and frustrating. That's how it's meant to be. The training is a wearing away of defilements. Even if the effort to awaken sati is not always successful, you can at least oppose defilement. That's how the training has to be. Sadly, the intellectual defilements of the Western monks did not entail a compensatory deficit in the earthier afflictions, and they were not spared Longpo's methods intended to toroman or torture the defilements. The rationale was explained to them on many occasions. Defilements could be most clearly revealed as defilements, the cause of suffering and not self, when they were steadfastly opposed. Looking at what happened when one was separated from the liked and united with the disliked provided a simple shortcut to understanding the nature of the mind. As this path of opposing desire was one that few people, even dedicated monastics, could follow consistently in a balanced, constructive way on their own, it was embedded in the heart of the training at Wat Bapong. For some, the need to constantly go against old habits could be overwhelming. One English postulant famously exclaimed loudly in a broad northern accent, This going against the stream, it's not a babbling brook we're talking about here, it's white water. One of the monks who felt the brunt of this style of teachings was Venerable Varapanyo. His well-known craving for iced drinks, a cause of much teasing, meant that he was seldom given the chance to indulge it. When I went to Lumpur's Kuti, it was as though he didn't even see me. If there was ice or a drink for the monks, he would wait until I left before passing it out. Years later, he recounted these episodes, saying that he felt for me, but that he knew he had to give me a hard time for my own benefit. Now you see the value in such treatment, don't you? I did. He often said jokingly to me and to the Sangha, I'd be afraid to go to America because Varapanya would probably want to get me back for torturing him. Venerable Varapanya also recalled an occasion when a visiting monk received similar treatment. Just before the rains retreat, a newly ordained American showed up. He was just out of the Peace Corps and was planning to stay in robes for a few months before going back home. He wanted to stay at Wat Bapong for the retreat, but Lung Po refused. It had nothing to do with the monk personally. Rather, it was the fact that Lung Po wanted to put new people through a probationary period, which couldn't be done during the retreat, and that he sometimes was just not so keen on people who weren't seriously committed but were just dabbling in monkhood. So the monk stayed a few days and prepared to leave, somewhat disappointed. One night before he left, Lung Po came to the Dhamma Hall to give a talk. After the chanting was done, he spoke for an hour with a layman who had come. Then he began his Dhamma talk. He went on and on, and on. After a couple of hours, it was obvious he was playing with us. One new monk was foolish enough to ask a question, and he gave a very long answer, and then he asked, Does anyone have any more questions? Nobody stirred. I thought, 
maybe he'll let us go now. But he said, well, maybe you are uncertain about, and went on into more explanation. It seemed that he covered everything in the entire Buddhist canon. Meanwhile, the Peace Corps monk, who'd been sitting directly in front of him, was squirming around, changing sitting positions, holding his drawn-up knees, definitely not to be done, and glaring angrily at Lung Po. Finally, at 1.15am, Lung Po looked at the clock and innocently said, What time is it? Oh, I guess it's time to adjourn. Perhaps I should mention that we never sat comfortably in chairs, but flat on the floor, and at Wat Bapong, the floors were concrete or marbly granite. We couldn't stretch our legs out or put our knees up in front of us or use a cushion. If you're accustomed to sitting on chairs, try it for two or three hours, and you'll appreciate what it was like. If you're accustomed to sitting on the floor, try four or five hours on a hard floor with no cushion. The next day, the Peace Corps monk came to me to complain. He shouldn't have done that. What a waste of time. That's the extreme of self-mortification. The Buddha's middle way means avoiding the extremes of sensual indulgence and self-mortification. That afternoon, Lung Po asked me if the new monk liked his talk the night before. I told him what he'd said. He laughed and said, I saw. I was observing him. I knew he was angry. Now he won't feel bad about not being able to stay here. Lung Po himself seemed to have an endless store of patience with his high-maintenance Western disciples. Ajahn Kemadama recounts, I remember him listening attentively as I laboured to explain some of the difficulties I'd been having, and then grinning and pointing to himself, saying, Me too! And that was it. He was amazingly tolerant. Really, with so many monks and a few really awkward ones, like me whose language he couldn't speak, it must have been an awful lot to put up with. But he never seemed to mind, except on one occasion when something went badly wrong, and then it was as if a jolly, happy old frog suddenly metamorphosed into the most terrifying species of monk-eating tiger you can imagine. He didn't mess about. I liked that. Work Projects In the end, it was the Western monks' belief in Lung Po's wisdom and compassion that allowed them to give themselves to the training. He pushed them out of their comfort zone. He showed them that they could do far more than they thought they could, endure things that alone they would never have endured. Work projects were one good example. Every now and again, there would be an intense period of hard physical labor, usually a building project, and the daily routine would be transformed. Morning chanting at three, a one or two hour arms round at dawn, meal at eight, these were sacrosanct. But after the daily meal was over, there might be a string of days when the monks would become cement mixers and labourers from mid-morning until after dark. Working long hours in temperatures exceeding 30 degrees and humidity above 90%, fueled by one meal a day and four or five hours sleep, stretched them to the limits. The construction of a new Uposata Hall was one of the last major projects that Lung Po was to oversee. 
The Oppositor Hall is usually the most beautiful and ornate building in a monastery. Often, many years have passed before a newly established monastery has sufficient funds to build such a hall. This was the case at Wat Bapong. From its inception, Batimoka recitations took place in a small, nondescript building behind the dining hall. Only in 1977 did work begin on the erection of an imposing Oppositor Hall, designed by an architect disciple of Lung Po in an unorthodox modern style. The building was to be situated to the west of the Dhamma Hall, on a raised platform of earth some three metres high. The earth for this base was brought in by truck, but with no machinery available, the task of moving it into place and pounding it solid fell to the monastics. It was gruelling work, accomplished with wheelbarrows, bamboo baskets and wooden pounders. The monks would begin at nine in the morning and finish by the light of kerosene lanterns at nine or ten at night. Most of the Thais, being from farming backgrounds, were not unused to this type of work in these kinds of conditions. But for the Westerners, predominantly from urban, middle-class backgrounds, it was a harsh test of endurance. Worse perhaps than the physical ordeal was the mental resistance. One monk said, The choice was to do it in a grudging way, longing to be away from all the activity and exhaustion, back in your kuti meditating, or just give yourself to the work. It made more sense to say to yourself, Lung Po's my teacher, and he wants me to do this. He's not asking me to do anything wrong, just something I don't want to do. Why make myself miserable with wanting something I can't have right now? Also, I'd noticed that if I did think wistfully of being away somewhere, doing formal meditation, the meditations I imagined I'd be having were always more peaceful than the real ones I was actually having at the time. The presence of Lung Po put others' minds at rest. One monk said, Just catching sight of Lung Po walking around looking so solid, so unshakable, I'd be filled with this absolute certainty that he knew exactly what he was doing. If this project was all right by him, I think, it's certainly good enough for me. With the conclusion of the work on the mound, Lung Po left for a few days, and an almost farcical period of earth-shifting ensued. The acting Amit decided that the leftover earth, which had just been laboriously shifted to a discrete location, would be better placed at a different spot. The monks were asked to return to work in order to shift the earth for a second time, a job requiring some three days' hard work. On Lung Po's return, however, he declared his preference for the original location, and the earth had to be carried wheelbarrow by wheelbarrow, basket by basket, back to the original spot. Some of the Western monks remembered having read about the trials of the Tibetan yogi Milarepa, and now felt that they had a better idea of what had been involved. Nevertheless, the value of this kind of interlude was not lost on the monks involved. Another monk commented, Lung Po was always creating situations where we'd have to face up to our old ingrained habits, particularly the ones in which we created suffering for ourselves by wanting things to be other than the way they were. He helped us to see our craving, and in everyday situations, how it fed our discontent, 
how we lie to ourselves. Ajahn Brahmavangso summarized, It taught me to look for the cause of my suffering, not in the externals, but in me, in my attitude, in my craving, in my attachment, in my delusions. And that if you cannot work and be peaceful, if you cannot move earth all day and be at peace with it, you'll never be freed from suffering. 